Alexander Supertramp was the name he gave for himself. His real name was Chris McCandless. He grew up in a high-achieving family. His father worked for NASA, and his mother worked for Hughes Aircraft. That high-achieving family caused pressure on him to go to college, get good grades, and find a respectable upper-class job. But after graduating college from Emory University in Georgia, he surprised everyone. Alexander sold all of his belongings, donated the money to charity, and started hitchhiking across America. He eventually found himself to the top of the Colorado River and decided he would canoe down the Colorado River all by himself. After that, he hiked around some more, hitchhiked around some more, enjoying life and freedom that came with it, and decided he wanted to go to Alaska. So he hitchhiked from the lower 48 all the way to Fairbanks, Alaska. And he enjoyed life and freedom like that. He was done with the pressures from the world, from his parents, from his professors, and from his friends. He was done with it all. He wanted freedom, and he found it, so he thought. Many of us can relate to Alexander, Supertramp. We feel that external pressure from the world. It comes from our parents that want to be proud of us, and, and in a loving way, they put you know, pressure on us to get an education and get a good job. It comes from the schools that we're in, where every class we take, every teacher puts pressure on us to get good grades in their class because you know, their class is essential to success in life. It comes from our jobs, where no matter how good our work is, there's always someone that provides feedback about how we could have done a better job. And as we continue these uh, series that we're going through in Galatians, these last words of Paul that Dave wrote read for us in Galatians, these words summarize for us the freedom we have because of our faith in Christ. And we've seen some of these freedoms already throughout the book. Chapters 1 and 2 were very personal, where Paul shares a lot of his personal testimony. We saw lots of words like I, me, and my in Paul's personal story about how he used to live under the law but found liberty under grace through his faith in Christ. Then chapters 3 and 4 were very doctrinal. There were lots of Old Testament quotations and allusions and citations that described how saints used to follow this law, but through Jesus Christ, they're saved based on their faith. Then chapters 5 and 6, as we've looked at the last three weeks, were very applicational. Paul gives lots of verbs and commands. The word you is used a lot because he's saying you need to do this to describe what we're supposed to do with that freedom that we have. But here in verses 11 through 18, Paul brings the entire letter to a close, and it's shown in how he provides his signature here in verse 11, showing the last letters of this letter. Verse 11 reads, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now you might ask, so now is, why is he now writing the letter? Isn't it something he wrote, the whole thing? But at this point, he picks up the little stylus and he starts to read. This is because in New Testament times, authors used what was called an amanuensis, meaning the person that was writing the letter usually would dictate the words to someone, and that person would write the words and letters down for them. 
those amanuensis people were very good in spelling and grammar. They could write in a small space to conserve uh, the expensive paper at that time, papyrus. And they could write clearly so that everybody could understand it. So Paul would dictate what he wanted to say, and amanuensis would write the things down. And we even read in Romans chapter 16, we learn the name of this the amanuensis there. The amanuensis says, I, Tertius. He kind of inserts himself into Paul's letter. That's in Romans 16, 22. In First and Second Thessalonians, Sylvanus and Timothy write the letter with Paul. Those are his amanuensis guys. I'm not sure what the plural of amanuensis is. Sorry. Amanuensis is? I'm not sure. But those are the two people that were his amanuensis people. So the point here that Paul makes in verse 11 is Paul takes the stylus from that amanuensis and he writes these last verses in his own handwriting as a way to verify that he is actually the author and also it underscores and emphasizes the points of the letter, the main things he wants to make sure the Galatians don't forget. The Galatians, I wonder sometimes if they even recognized his handwriting. Paul had spent time with them in Galatia, they knew him, and I wonder if he had an interesting way of dotting his I's or crossing his T's. Did he have funny looking U's or goofy looking L's? Did they recognize his own words? I sometimes wonder if the letter even smelled like Paul. Maybe it smelled like leather and wood from his time making tents. Maybe it smelled like the salty ocean air from all of his time traveling the seas to share the gospel. Maybe it smelled like a campfire from how they would often cook their meals. But either way, this was Paul's method to show them, this is really me, and these are really the things I want you to take away. And after verse 11, he jumps into his discussion of the legalizers, which he hasn't talked about in a couple chapters. And as a reminder, the legalizers are these people that showed up in the region of Galatia after Paul had left there. And they told the believers in Galatia, it's okay to be saved by faith, but you also need to follow these Old Testament laws and customs. Those are what the legalizers were doing. They believed that people were saved through their merit based on what they did, not through God's mercy of what God did. And Paul reminds the Galatians about the legalizers, their agenda, and their motives. He describes in verses 12 and 13, he says, Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised, so that they may boast in your flesh. Now there's three things related to the legalizer's agenda and motive that Paul points out for us. One is the legalizers were only interested in pleasing men. Verse 12 starts out, it says that they desired to make a good showing in the flesh. A literal way to translate this is to have a good face. Or I like the New International Version, the NIV puts it probably the best way, it says that they wanted to make a good impression to other people. Having lived in California and traveled sometimes to Los Angeles, to LA, you learn about something in LA often. People are all concerned about what they call is the look. 
right? There's the look if you live in LA. It means if you're a guy, you gotta be tan and strong. And if you're a woman, you gotta have to be, you know, thin and blonde hair. That's the look that everybody's always, they're concerned about the outward appearance, not anything that has to do with the inside. And these legalizers were concerned about how they looked to other people. They wanted to make a good impression. And it says here that their goal in verse 12 was to compel you, being the Galatians, to be circumcised. This, the way this is described indicates that it was in progress but hadn't yet happened. People that uh, describe Greek grammar call this a connotative present, meaning it's something that had maybe started or was in progress but hadn't been completed. So perhaps they had their knives for circumcision and they were sharpening them. Maybe they called their blacksmith, local blacksmith, and said, I need the best, sharpest knife you have. But Paul is able to intercede on their behalf here with this letter to tell them that obviously they don't need to be circumcised as we've looked at before. So the legalizers were only interested in pleasing men, and the legalizers were afraid of persecution. We read here in verse 12 where it says, the passage continues in verse 12, so that they will not be uh, so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now to be circumcised in order to not be persecuted sounds a little odd, sounds a little interesting, but if we think about their time in which they were living, requiring people to be circumcised prevented persecution from two different groups. It prevented persecution from the Jews. Having everyone get circumcised pleased the Jews because it meant that the people weren't joining a competing faith or a new faith, but instead they were submitting to the old established religion of the times. Faith in Christ for salvation that included circumcision appeased the rules, regulations, and restrictions of the rabbis in Judaism. So if they got circumcised, even though they were had their faith in Christ, if they got circumcised, they wouldn't be persecuted by the Jews. If they got persecuted, they if they got sorry, if they got circumcised, they also wouldn't be persecuted by the Romans. Because the Romans had accepted Judaism as a legal religion in the empire. So any Gentile that was circumcised would fall under the category of Judaism. Therefore, they wouldn't experience persecution. To reject circumcision and take the name of a Christian would mean you weren't protected under the legal umbrella of Judaism in Roman law. So the legalizers have a valid point. To get circumcised greatly reduced the chance of persecution, but the problem was you didn't need to get circumcised in order to be saved, and in fact that added to the gospel. And Paul continues here describing the legalizers. He says the legalizers wanted to boast because of the number of converts they had. At the end of verse 13, it says, they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. The legalizers wanted to claim the Galatians as their own. The message paraphrase puts it this way. It says, they only want you to be circumcised so they can boast of their success in recruiting you to their side. Right, that it was a pride issue and they wanted to show larger numbers in order to look better and have a bigger crowd and count people 
for their converts. It reminds me of a story about a country preacher that was uh, pastoring a church and it was starting to grow and the success started going to his head and he started to believe his own press and you know, think how great he was. And his wife kind of knows what he's really like, but she's not buying this, you know, big head that he's getting. So one day they're driving home from work or from church and he tells his wife, he says, you know, Mrs. Smith has told me I've become one of the great preachers in America. And the wife's like, really? Okay. And then he asks her, how many great preachers in America do you think there are? She says, one less than you think. <laughs> okay. It's a pride issue about how great we are and how great our numbers are. The same thing with these legalizers. The legalizers wanted to point to the Galatians as their catch, kind of like a bass angler that wants the biggest bass he can get, or a hunter that wants the biggest elk and rack that he can acquire. The legalizers, for them, their big catch was these group of Galatians that they wanted to recruit to their side and point to as their numbers grew. But if we jump down to verse 17, Paul talks, he's talked about the legalizers' agenda and their motives in verses 12 and 13. In 17, Paul reminds the Galatians that the legalizers have been a headache for him in the past. The first half of 17 says, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me. See, the legalizers had been causing trouble for Paul because they were, they were contradicting his teaching. And there's a connection we need to make sure we don't miss. Paul is 200 miles away from Galatia, but he's being caused trouble by these legalizers in Galatia. So he's 200 miles away in Antioch, kind of like from here to SeaTac Airport is 184 miles, so about the same distance. And he's being troubled because of what these people are doing. And it's important for us to remember that we are a body of believers, and we're all part of a broader evangelical Christian community. So when one church somewhere suffers or experiences hurt, we also get hurt too. So when Reverend Billy Graham passed away in 2018, it wasn't just one small Southern Baptist church in North Carolina that he was part of that mourned. We all mourned when he passed away. And it also goes not just from church to church, but also within the church and from person to person. When a church family member passes away, we mourn for that person, and we mourn with the spouse that lives on. That's why we need to love each other and care for each other and show love for each other within the body, because if we don't love and care for each other, the rest of the world probably won't. And so Paul transitions here from talking about the legalizers in verses 12 and 13 and shifts his focus to the liberator in verse 14. He says in verse 14, But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Now notice he starts there in that verse with the word but at the beginning of the verse. It shows a contrast between the legalizers described in verses 12 and 13 and the liberator in verse 14 and then us as the liberated in 15, 16, and 17. So while these legalizers were trying to earn favor with God through human effort, here we learn about how we earn God's favor through heaven's effort because of what God did for us. And Paul boasts about this. He says he boasts in the cross 
of Christ. Pride in this world, I'm sorry, pride in this would read odd in Paul's time. If we think about it, that phrase, to boast in the cross of Christ, would be like us boasting about someone having to go to the electric chair or someone that is uh, killed on death row in those ways. But Paul's message is that he boasts in the cross of Christ, and he tells us how significant the cross has been in his life. He says here in verse 14, Through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. The cross has freed Paul from the demands of the world, is what he's saying. According to Galatians, the cross means liberty, and we saw this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, that I'd like to read with you, and if you have a Bible, you can turn there too. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul describes how the cross meant liberty from ourselves. He says in chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The cross also has freed us from the flesh. We read that in Galatians 5.24. He describes how the cross has freed us from the flesh. 5.24, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then here in chapter 6, verse 14, that the cross has meant liberty from the world and the world's demands on him. The world put Christ on a cross, but Paul now puts the world on the cross because of Christ. He is no longer subject to the world, and that includes the legalizers and all the things they're trying to add to the religion. When we place our faith in Christ, we're freed from the worldly pressures placed on us. As Paul's liberator, the cross has severed him from the world. And this provides a good reminder for us that we need to separate our identities from the world. Our identities are in Christ, not in the things of the world. Some things in the world that sometimes we might slip into having our identity in are accomplishments at work. Are we defined by our jobs and what we do? Is that our identity or is it in Christ? Is it our family? Are we so wrapped up in our family or our kids or things like that? That when the kids go off to college, we don't know what to do with ourselves. Do we have a desire for more education and certificates and training and always learning and getting more degrees? Is that our identity or is it in Christ? And those are all good things, but they're things of the world's that, world that should not define who we are. Our identity should be in Christ, not in the world. So Paul describes the liberator in verse 14, then he turns his focus to us, the liberated, in the next two verses. And he describes us that when we are liberated, we are a new creation. Verse 15 reads, for neither is circumcision anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. Here in verse 15, this is the kind of the pivot verse of this passage. It's the apex. It continues describing what happens because of heaven's effort in verse 14. We are a new creation by God's transformative grace. The new creation has taken the place of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. 
Behold, new things have come. And one of the most encouraging parts of being involved in church or doing ministry in small groups that you might be in is you get to see people that are new creation because of God's work in their lives. How they drastically change and spin 180. And one example comes to my life, mind is a woman that after 30 years of being wrapped up in drugs and destructive relationships with men and three kids from three different men, God got a hold of her at some point, man, and she just changed and walked with God in a way I never got to see of a lot of people. And that's encouraging to see that new creation because of something they do. No, because they were doing the same thing for 30 years. But at some point, God works in their life and drastically changes them. And that's the encouraging thing we get to see when we're involved in the church is the new creation that people become. So Paul says, when we are liberated by Christ, we're a new creation in verse 15. And in verse 16, when we are liberated by Christ, we experience peace, he says in verse 16. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And he describes peace, that we experience peace because we're freed from the world's pressures on us. That's why we experience peace. As believers, no one's telling us that we have to do anything in order to gain others' favor. We don't have to suck up to the high ups at jobs. We don't have to put pressure on others because there's lots of pressure on us. We don't have to climb the ladder of success because everybody tells us that's what you're supposed to do. The message paraphrase puts this verse this way. It says, because of that cross, I have been crucified in relation to the world set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into the little patterns that they dictate. We have peace because we know where we're going and we know that God's Holy Spirit walks with us along the way. The path might be difficult. It probably will always be difficult at some point, and it will be painful, but we know the path ends with us spending eternity with God in heaven forever. And that gives us peace. So we experience peace because we're freed from the world's pressures on us, but we also experience peace because we're part of a new family that Paul describes here. And he describes two groups of believers here in this verse at the end of 16. The first group he describes are probably Gentile Christians, where it says, peace and mercy be upon them. These are those spiritual seed of Abraham, those who are Gentiles, probably you and me. We're not Jewish, so we are Gentiles that place faith in Christ, and we are Gentile Christians. And this was the Galatians as well. But he also describes Jewish Christians here. At the very end of the verse, he references, and upon the Israel of God. These are the physical seed of Abraham, the literal descendants of Abraham and Israel, that have placed their faith in Christ for salvation. These are Jews that became Christians. So he describes Gentile Christians as well as Jewish Christians. But if you have the NIV translation or the NLT, it kind of throws these two groups together because there's a little debate on one Greek conjunction and how you translate that conjunction. But I think the translation here that I read for you um, probably is the, it's the most dominant one. And it matches some of the things we know in the Old Testament, that God made lots of promises to Abraham and the nation of Israel. And all of those promises were never fulfilled in the Old Testament. 
So it's most likely that God still is going to fulfill some of those unique promises to Abraham's seed and to his family in the future. But that's one of the reasons that we get peace, is because we belong to a new family. So we're, when we're liberated by Christ, we're a new creation, we experience peace, and when we are liberated by Christ, we experience regular persecution. In verse 17 at the end, Paul says, For I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. And the word brand marks there is from the Greek word that means stigma, and it comes from a verb that means to prick or to sting or to stick someone with something. So a pretty graphic picture of what it means there for Paul. And this is, was similar in that time. Slaves had the stamp of their owners, the name of their owners stamped on them. Soldiers sometimes would have a tattoo of the army that they were in, things like that. And we even see that today sometimes. I like to watch NASCAR, and if you talk to NASCAR fans, the question you usually ask is, who's your guy? Who's the guy you root for? And I've learned over the years, guy, real NASCAR fans, they don't have to tell you who their guy is. They usually have it tattooed somewhere on their body. <laughs> There's a janitor that once worked for me. I said, who's your guy? And he shows me the numbers on his like, whole back, or numbers of his driver, Jeff Gordon, okay? So here, Paul's talking about the actual physical scars that are on his body from believing in Jesus. And there's a point here we don't want to miss. While those legalizers were trying to do things to avoid persecution, Paul saw persecution as proof that he was a true believer. And this provides a reminder for us as believers that we too experience persecution because of our faith. Now, living in America, that persecution is very mild, definitely nothing compared to people in other countries like Africa or India or, or China or things like that. But there are times where we experience persecution. I've heard stories from people that are Christians and they work in a job and people mock them and say, you just have religion because you're weak. You can't handle life on your own. Your faith is for weak people. That's you. That's what people would say that publicly in front of other people. It might be um, not getting a promotion at your job because you try to do things honestly with integrity. You don't cut corners, you don't you know, do things illegally, but because of that, you get passed up for jobs because other people utilize those corners that they can cut in order to boost their numbers and look good. Another thing that we get persecuted as believers is that our faith teaches us, the Bible teaches us that it's good to wait until marriage to have sex. That we want to save ourselves for that one person that when we're married we have sex with that one person but our culture has lots of fun making fun of us for being virgins if we're in our 20s or 30s and they have lots of fun mocking us that we would save ourselves and want to have sex with only one person some of you have even shared stories of your family members that mock you and call you an idiot because you have a faith or you're stupid that you believe in jesus and all those things those are all persecutions that we receive from other people. But persecution, as Paul tells us here, reminds us that we are true believers of God. So as we wrap up our time together, Alexander Supertramp, that guy I started the message with, he was looking for freedom from the pressures of the world. He thought he found it. He ended up in Fairbanks, Alaska, 
Uh, he walked down this trail and found a place out in the wilderness in an old abandoned bus, and he lived in that bus. And he thought he found that freedom he was looking for. But it, things didn't turn out good for him. After just a hundred days of living out there, at the age of 24, he passed away. Because he ate some berries that had toxins in them and infected his digestive system. And even though he was eating, his body couldn't process any of the nutrients. And he died out there in the wilderness of Alaska. He was looking for that freedom, but he never actually found it. And for us as believers, we experience freedom from the world. But that freedom doesn't come because we sell everything, abandon our family, and move to Alaska. It comes from our liberator, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for us and freed us from the sins that enslaved us and were sending us to hell. Now we are liberated by the liberator, and we are a new creation, and we enjoy peace as a family.